And this being understood, I am now proceeding with reading the sutra number 51. Again, according to this numbering, we are not going to have uh, arguments about the numbers. Um, the sutra number 51 in this edition, um, from the chapter number 3, which is part of the concluding four sutras about Samyama and higher spiritual and paranormal accomplishments. And the sutra number 51 can be translated as follows. By Samyama, so it's this special concentration, by Samyama, upon the moment and its order of succession, is born the true knowledge, born of the realization of the ultimate reality. Samyama upon the moment. The moment is, the word in Sanskrit used here is the Sanskrit word kshana, which is a legendary word because kshana means the smallest unit of time, a moment. The kshana is perfectly, perfectly the equivalent of a quantum in quantum mechanics. The quantum in quantum physics means basically the smallest divisible portion, like when you reach to the level of indivisibility, you can't get lower than that, the smallest portion, especially in terms of energy. The term was uh, coined, especially as quantum of energy, the smallest amount of energy possible. It is impossible to have energy, or to transmit energy, or to receive energy as a half quantum. There does not exist a half quantum of energy. The quantum is the smallest divisibility, exactly as in a currency you have a coin, and the smallest coin is the smallest coin. You can't go below the smallest divisibility of that. Of course, in the old days, regular physics believed that atoms are the quantums of matter, but then, of course, quantum mechanics demonstrated that atoms are made of elementary particles, elementary particles are made of sub-elementary particles, and if you go further than the sub-elementary particles, you reach to an ocean of energy, out of which the smallest unit is the quantum. But the implication of this quantum mechanics discovery is flabbergasting and fundamental, because it suggests immediately that if matter and energy are divided in quantums, then automatically space and time, which are measures of those, are also divided in quantums, and this in quanta. And this automatically uh, makes us understand that our universe is a fragmentary universe. It is not a continuum, but it is made of portions. This simply says that although the space between me and you seems to be a continuum of space, quantum mechanics as well as Tantra and classical yoga would say that it is actually made of a lot of very, very small spaces, the quanta of space. And although time seems to be flowing non-stop, none of you can see any sequence in time, Nevertheless, this theory will lead to the conclusion, which is taken very seriously even in modern science today, that time itself is a quantic time. 
that time is a little bit like a stroboscope, that time is flowing like a very quick sequence. This is the comparison which immediately uh, demonstrates or basically illustrates this, is of course the comparison with the cinematographic film. When you see a movie in the cinema hall, you are actually seeing 25 slides per second. You see a fast slideshow, that's all a movie is. And those slides, each one of them have no movement. Every one of you has seen ever a cinematographic film, how it looks. It's just static images, nothing moves on the film. And the images succeed each other with a certain speed, and this gives the illusion for our imperfect eye that it actually sees movement and continuity. And the tantric theory, and those of you who have joined me in our, in our lecture about the structure of space and time according to Tantra, uh, have seen already and have had an illustration of this tantric model, which claims that the universe, the space and time are quantic. They are discontinuous. They are discrete and not continuous reality. And this simply says, this reality, which we are experiencing right now, is actually like a slideshow. But it's much, 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 much faster than 25 times per second. It is so fast that until now there is absolutely no instrument except the perfect human consciousness that can see through it. It is so fast that it is fastest than the fastest movement, than the fastest movement of the mind. And therefore, even the mind is unable to grasp the fact that the universe blinks, that it's a slideshow, it's like a stroboscopic show in which like the universe flashes, flashes, flashes with an incredible frequency. And because of this, the only way of discovering this is through meditation, through consciousness. The yogis do not believe that there can exist an instrument as perfect as being able to measure this quantic nature of time. This is the one to which we refer here. And to make the long story short, the Vedantic and the Vedic seers, even way before Vedanta, they have defined the quantum of time. And the quantum of time, which means you can't go shorter than that, that's the blinking unit, that's the shortest time, is called the Kshana. For your curiosity, a kshana is a unit of time which is really, really, really small. In uh, today's um, physics, we are talking about nanotechnology and we are talking about times which are nanoseconds. A nanosecond is a zero followed by eight zeros and a one by nine digits of a second. So it is like one over a billion or something like, or a, a thousand billion seconds, of a second. Uh, but there are times registered in physics which are shorter than a nanosecond. That's 10 at the minus ninth potency of a second. There exists the concept of a picosecond, amptosecond, femtosecond. There are diminutives of that which goes 10 at the minus 12, at the minus 15th. And so it's like the number of zeros increases enormously and we're talking about times which are only with the mind you can conceive of their existence 
but there is no way in which you can feel something about such a unit of time. And the kshana is smaller than that. The kshana, if I remember correctly, is 10 at the minus 20 something potency of a second. It's a shortness of time, a blink of time of an inimaginable short duration. And the yogis simply say that this is the speed of the thought. At the last level of the mind, that's the time which it takes for an idea to pop up, to bubble up, to, for an idea to emerge. And they consider that the ultimate speed. In terms of quantum mechanics, this will be the equivalent of a quantum transition between two levels of energy, which is the shortest time measured in Western physics until today. And why am I saying this? Because a kshana, by tradition, is considered to be indivisible and static. A kshana is nothing else but a slide from a slideshow. If you want to reduce this universe to a slideshow, the slides are at the dimension of a kshana. And that simply says, at a very, very, very deep level of consciousness, this universe is basically static. And this is the teaching which is given by all the metaphysics, that on one hand we have a dynamics of the universe, that the universe moves, moves, moves. The law which characterizes this universe is change. As a great Greek philosopher said, Pantare, everything flows, everything changes. The whole universe, the whole manifestation is characterized by endless change. Uh, another one said, we cannot bathe twice in the same river. Like, that is never the same river. A second later, and the old water has passed, and another water is coming, and the river is new forever, renewed forever. And therefore, the idea is that there exists a dynamic nature of the universe, and this dynamic nature of the universe by tradition, in tantric tradition, is called Shakti or Vimarsha, and there exists a static nature of the universe, which is exactly the kshana, the moment, the blink, the flashing forth, which is static, and that is called by tradition in Tantra, Shiva, the archetypal consciousness, or Purusha, the self-effulgent light, which makes possible the manifestation of this consciousness. And if we look at this, we start understanding a little bit better what he says. He says, by making Samyama upon the moment, upon the Kshana, upon the slide, the unit of the slideshow, and its order of succession, is born the true knowledge. Basically, we can say that time is a perpetual succession of moments, of static moments, of stroboscopic flashes, poop, 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 each one of them static, they don't move, each one of them is a static characteristic or image. And Samyama is practiced on the succession of these movements. It's a very, very, very deep understanding here. Kshana, in a certain way, it is exactly like the power of now. It's the moment. In Zen, there exists this attempt, and not only in Zen, of course, in all the spiritualities, to achieve presence. And the presence means that time seems to stop. There is no past and there is no future. There exists just a present and in that present the, the mind freezes because that present is 
so tiny. It's like miraculously the yogis, the Zen masters, the spiritualists, whatever you want to call them, who manage to focus on the moment, they manage to stop the movie for a, for a while. This movie is going with an incredible speed and somehow by an extraordinary vigilance of the consciousness. It is exactly like a cat that is trying to catch a mouse that spins on a fairy's wheel or something. And the cat goes like this, you know, it can catch it with an incredible speed. It's like your mind can seize something in a fraction of a second. Where everybody sees just a world, your mind is so quick that it can like freeze the whole thing. It can kind of catch a moment of it. And therefore, this is called in the tantric text by a word, by a word which in the West would be translated as vigilance. Like you have to be vigilant. You have to be like the cat that wants to catch the mouse. You have to be ready to bounce in a fraction of a second. You have to be able to seize, to grasp. And to seize or to grasp the various spiritualities of the world have used the most diversified moments. Focusing, mantras, surprise methods, concentration of an overwhelming nature, intensity of energy and devotion and emotions and feelings, and so on and so forth. There exist so many methods and the purpose of all of them is to stop the movie for a second. That in the middle of a sneezing, in the middle of a concentration on a black dot on the wall, in the middle of a prayer, in the middle of kirtan or bhajan, in the middle of lovemaking, in the middle of a dream, in the middle of something, you should be able to stop the whole thing and get fixed on one of those slides. Stay on one of those slides. This is the power of now, because the present is static. It's an infinitesimally thin slice of the reality in which we stop like on the edge of a knife. It's like, it's just an extremely narrow margin. And that is the kshana. And if the universe is made of kshanas, try to realize, we are having a moment here, and this moment is nothing else but pure spirit. That is the thing. If you eliminate the past and the future, the present is not mind anymore. The mind goes into past and future. But there is a moment which is present. And the present is not mind. The present is awareness, mindfulness, consciousness. And that is why actually the mind with its past and future is like in Ajna Chakra and the present is in the crown chakra. It is the awareness. It is transcending the aspects of the mind, the polarity of the mind. And therefore, to be able to focus on the present is actually to be able to stop the mind. And to stop the mind is nothing else but nirvikalpa, the very definition of yoga. To be able to stop the vikalpas, to stop the dualizing thought. Because everything is a hologram. And if my mind is going into past and future, then my breath is going into yin and yang, into the iranadi and pingalanadi, and everything is dual. Up till a certain level, everything in this universe is subjected to duality. But beyond a certain level, there is only oneness. And therefore, the idea is that by Focusing on the present moment, one can reach enlightenment. 
This is exposed brilliantly in The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and it has been exposed in so, it presented in so many ways, in so many mystical traditions of this mankind. To stop the mind by focusing on this edge of a knife, to stop in this impossible place. It's exactly like somebody would ask you to jump from the full speed of a train or of a vehicle and to land on a stripe which is one millimeter broad, to have a precision of an incredible accuracy, to be able to go and just get there. How would you stop the mind, which is conditioned by the whole stroboscopic game of the universe, to just let the universe continue and you just keep one slide. And the universe keeps on reverberating because the universe doesn't stop. But subjectively for you, it did. You are in a state of nirvikalpa. You are in a state of fixation. The mind has stopped wobbling. There is no more past and future. There is no more yin and yang. There is just this freezing. The mind is arrested. And that is why... Focusing upon the moment is the great goal of any spirituality. If you reach the crown chakra, then when you are fully in the crown chakra, you focus upon the moment. There exists nothing else but this moment right here. And the question then which comes is, okay, I understand the prakasha, the pure light, the Shiva aspect, the void the moment, the kshana, this frozen, transcendent, perfect thing, which is the pure awareness, which is the pure presence and mindfulness, this is transcendent, this represents the spirit. And then, what is happening? What is the mind giving? Well, the mind is gluing the different moments. There exists one moment, and then there exists another moment, and then there exists another moment, and of course, this moment doesn't know about the other moment. Realize, there is a moment, cluck, cluck, and then there is another moment. This is like another universe. It's like another, it's completely, what connects these two? These two moments, of course, in a movie, you know that if you look at one slide of the show, and if you look at the next and previous slides of the show, except in the rare moment when you catch a change of frame, but otherwise, the next slide and the previous slide are almost like the previous one. The changes between two slides are infinitesimal because they go with 25 frames per second and therefore how much change occurs in the image in a 25th of a second. Very little, unless some super fast event is presented there. And therefore, a slide and the next and the next and the next they are like identical. Of course there is a small difference because from a slide to another slide the hand of a character moves. And in 25 slides this hand goes click, 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 click. So everything is the same, just a little bit of an aspect here changes. So there is a small difference from one slide to the next. But that difference is like one slide doesn't know about the next slide. Each slide doesn't care about its predecessor and about the next one. So what unites the slides? The slides are united by this ribbon. All the slides are put on a film. So this film is what we call time. This film is what we call succession. And this film, as we showed already, 
is part of the manifestation, it's part of Prakriti, it's part of that reality in which there is past and future. One slide is in the past and one slide is in the future. And therefore, this the relationship between them is actually a matter of time, of Ajna Chakra, it is a matter of Prakriti. And now if we look again at the, at the Sutra of Patanjali, he says, by Samyama upon the moment and its order of succession. There are two things. The moment, which is Shiva, Purusha, pra I'm sorry, Prakasha, the light, the static thing, and the order of succession, which is an energy, a dynamism, a moving force. It's change. It is the glue which glues this frame with this frame and with this frame. And which says, wait a second. The hand of a person cannot go from here directly to here, disappear from here and appear here. There has to be a succession. There are laws. And those laws says that this hand moves from here to here like this. There is a succession. And therefore, this, this is a law of the universe. It's a law of the manifestation. And we call it time. And it is also the law of causality. And it is, of course, ultimately also the law of cause and effect. That everything, this is cause, this is effect. This becomes the new cause, this becomes the new effect. This becomes the third cause, this becomes the next effect. And it just goes like this. Each cause, each effect becomes a cause and the chain goes on forever. And that is why, basically, what Patanjali says here in a very, very smart way, he says, meditate on the static aspect of the universe and on the dynamic aspect of the universe. Meditate on the fact that in this universe there is something which is frozen. If you zoom down to the smallest unit of time, you are going to find static, Shiva, Prakasha, perfection, immutability. But then if you let the, pra uh, the Shakti do her job, then Shakti links this moment to the next moment and to the next moment. And thus the universe is not just one flash, but it's a myriad of flash. It's a stroboscopic flashing. It's a flashing forth of the spiritual reality, of the spiritual principle of Purusha. And therefore, Patanjali advises here a supreme meditation. And he uses, not coincidentally, I would say, he uses time. Because time is a very subtle phenomenon. It is considered by the tantrics and even by modern physics, if you look carefully, as more subtle than space. And therefore, like space, we can cross it both ways. We haven't learned yet how to cross time both ways. And therefore, time is yet to be discovered. As we demonstrate in, the, in our conferences about the structure of space and time in Tantra, the human being has discovered the first three dimensions of space because we are three-dimensional beings and we have discovered just one dimension of time because we move in time only one way and that's the famous fourth dimension. But as it can be demonstrated, in, and in that lecture I do that, time actually has three dimensions also, just like space. It's a volume, it's a space of time, so to speak, uh, and therefore, the problem, the issue of the structure of space and time is much more complex than it first seems to be. And that is why here, 
Patanjali recommends a very discreet, a very refined meditation. He says, meditate on Purusha, on Prakasha, the light of the spirit, this immutable light, Shiva, the transcendent, and meditate with it under the form of Kshana, the moment, the present moment, this blink, this quantum of time. And then try to think, how on earth manages the universe to connect one slide with another? Why the moments in time seem to, fo to flow fluidly? Like there exists causality. Although every moment in time is independent, it's just a slide. It's just a presence of the divine consciousness. It's here and now. And nevertheless, this here and now is related to the next here and now. There exists a dynamic law which glues them together. It's the glue of the universe. This glue of the universe is mind. It is time. It is Shakti, if you prefer. We can call this glue of the universe Shakti because everything is made of energy, ultimately. Ultimately, everything is energy in this reality. And thus, Shakti is the universe. Shakti is the glue of the universe. It can be called mind because the mind is the first energy under the spirit and therefore the mind is the ultimate level of manifestation of the energy, of the manifestation. Beyond mind you find only spirit, the transcendent. And because of this we can call it mind, we can call it time because Patanjali presents it as time and we can call it Shakti as I said. So now this Samyama, this meditation, appears a bit more real. Patanjali says, concentrate, concentrate deeply, meditate and achieve Samyama, become absorbed into this strange duality. Moment, which is Shiva, Purusha, and sequence of moments, what is between the moments, the glue which unites the celluloid film which unites two slides in the same slideshow and which is Shakti, the change, the universe, the manifestation. And therefore, basically here, if you want to turn it in a pure tantric way, Patanjali would say, meditate, do Samyama on Shiva and Shakti, the relationship between them, the simultaneous presence. But Patanjali is not a tantric and because of this he chooses a formalism. He chooses an instrument to do that and of course he finds a very beautiful and very inspired instrument. Out of all instruments he chooses time and he says focus on first of all the immutable time, the present, the kshana and the sequence which is mysteriously involving another force, a causality which makes that these slides link to each other. And he says by Samyama upon the moment and its order of succession, because theoretically every moment can be broken apart from the whole, and it's independent, it's perfect in itself, it's Purusha, it's Shiva, it's Prakasha, it's the light of the spirit, the immutable life of the spirit, by making Samyama upon that and the order of succession, on Shiva and Shakti, is born the true knowledge, born of the realization of the ultimate reality. So basically here Patanjali says, here we have a Samyama which does not give levitation, which does not make you fly through the air. Here is a Samyama which does not produce 
invisibility, knowledge of the human body or some other uh, strange paranormal ability. Here is actually a Samyama which will give you the supreme realization, the ultimate knowledge. Is by this Samyama you have true knowledge. He calls it in the text the Viveka Jnanam, the, discrim the discriminative knowledge which is born of the realization of the ultimate reality. So you get the knowledge which is born from the realization of the ultimate reality, which simply says if you do such a Samyama, you realize the ultimate reality, because the ultimate reality is indeed made of Purusha and Prakriti, of Shiva and Shakti, of the transcendent and of the immanent, of the non-manifested and the manifested. It's a very beautiful, it's a Samyama of a supreme level and Patanjali indeed closes this chapter in glory. He comes, he starts from lower Samyamas and he reaches to some Samyamas which don't give ordinary Siddhis or paranormal abilities but which give actually, which generate the discriminative ultimate knowledge. And he continues in the Sutra number 52 by describing some effects. And he says, therefrom, so it's a continuation, therefrom, from that knowledge, from this discrimination, comes knowledge of two similar objects, which are otherwise indistinguishable by class of birth, characteristic, or position, because of no definition. This is very beautifully commented, by Indian commentators, they say objects are defined, are differentiated by class of birth, by characteristic, or by position. They are differentiated by class of birth, like you can see, this is a cow, this is a horse. Okay, there is differentiation, I know which is the cow, which is a horse. But what if I have two cows? Oh, I can say this cow is brown, this cow is white with dark spots. Okay, so it has different characteristics, there are cows, but they have different characteristics. But now let us presume that we have two cows which look pretty much the same, identical in size, color. They have the same characteristics, like twin cows. How do I make the differentiation? By position, because this cow is here and this cow is here. And I say, okay, so there are two cows because it's placed here and there. But what if something would be undifferentiable by any of these characteristics? How are we going to make the difference then? So Patanjali says, therefore, therefrom, from this discrimination, comes knowledge of two similar objects which are otherwise indistinguishable by class of birth, characteristic or position, because of no definition or no differentiation. We can as well say, this is very beautiful, because it says, it shows that the spiritual knowledge is not the same thing with the discriminative knowledge. Many people make this thing. They say, oh, Ramakrishna has reached at spiritual knowledge and this spiritual knowledge is supposed to be absolute in nature, which simply says that Ramakrishna should have a knowledge of everything. Speak all the foreign languages of the earth, know all the sciences and technologies and skills and so on. And of course it's not true while potentially it might be true and we can always always wonder, nevertheless at the level of the daily life, 
we know that neither Ramakrishna nor the Rishis nor those nor those whoever was spiritual on this planet they seemed to have some limitation in some way or another like they did not profess to speak and understand all the languages know all the skills why because this one is discrete is knowledge which is objective scientific limited and this one is the actual spiritual knowledge and people mix them people think that spiritual knowledge means quantitative knowledge and it is a qualitative knowledge basically the this sutra of patanjali says there exists an understanding of the ultimate identity of everything and i'm going to give you an example of some things which are like indistinguishable for example let's go down to the basis of matter atoms who would be able today with any scientific method to make distinction between two atoms of the same element like you have two hydrogen atoms here is one and here is the other the only way of distinguishing them is because they are separated in space and we can say this one is here this one is here but otherwise those two atoms look like completely identical if you turn your head and somebody mixes them you can't say which was which there is no way to identify them they don't have any mark and patanjali says it's not true from the level of sahasrara everything has a mark everything is individual it's like there is a serial number on everything even on elementary particles on beings on everything that is why the yogis consider that the fear of some people that you become depersonalized by doing meditation or spirituality is absurd because actually the more you do spirituality the more you become yourself it is impossible to lose your identity because the nature itself is identity we speak about the very word we say how can we identify the word to identify it comes from i identity the identity and therefore when i'm going towards meditating on who am i this basically means that i'm going towards the fundamental identity and that is why patanjali says beyond all the distinctions of prakriti that something can be a different class different place different characteristics there exists a kind of manufacturer's serial number like in this universe nothing is identical with something else everything is a unicat everything is a single product everything is unique and the creator of the universe can recognize one atom from another atom this atom is walter and this atom is jack i know them as different they are two different atoms therefore this is very very important it actually tells us something about the spiritual reality uh, look again it says therefore therefrom comes knowledge of two similar objects which are otherwise indistinguishable by class of birth characteristic or position because of no definition because of no differentiation therefore in the divine consciousness at the level of the supreme consciousness nothing is lost because the identity is eternal it cannot disappear 
Remember, if even an atom has personality and can be differentiated by another from another atom, how not so about the human being? It is impossible to do some meditation or something and to say, I lost myself, I am not myself anymore. It's impossible, because the identity is fundamental, is inscripted in every atom, it is inscripted in every quantum of energy and of time and of whatever else you want, of space, of this universe. Everything is a small series production, it's just a unicode production. This universe is not a mass production. We human beings can seem to be similar, but in terms of spirituality we are not. In front of God, each and every one of us is one, identifiable. We have a unique relationship with the universe, which is irrepeatable, inimitable. And that is why I'm uh, bringing the idea that this understanding of the relationship between the transcendent and the immanent, between the kshana and the succession of moments, between purusha and prakriti, is basically making us understand that there is a quantitative difference which is in prakriti, in nature, and this is where scientific knowledge goes, that I can know things quantitatively and differentiate them, and then I reach to a point where I can't see the difference anymore. And from there, there is still a difference, but that difference is the I, the I am, the identity itself. It is a very, very important meditation, this one, because here Patanjali demonstrates in the similar way as Kashmiri Shaivas would demonstrate it and say it, uh, Patanjali demonstrates basically that the identity cannot be lost and that actually spiritual practice is exactly a recovery of the identity. He demonstrates that spiritual knowledge is not the usual type of knowledge. People who do yoga, if when they acquire the spiritual knowledge, they do not acquire a scientific knowledge. The scientific knowledge is quantitative, and it is acquired by the mind. And according to Tantra, there is nothing wrong with that knowledge. If you want to be very knowledgeable, very scientific, very brainy, very intellectual, very philosophical. It's okay. You can have an ocean of mind available for your knowledge. But there exists another knowledge, which is called here the discriminative knowledge, the viveka jnana, the knowledge which is the knowledge of the spirit. He says there comes the true knowledge in the previous sutra, born of the realization of the ultimate reality. That's the true knowledge. It's not the discursive knowledge, not the quantitative, dualistic, dualizing knowledge, which is also good in this universe. Again, I have nothing against that knowledge. I'm not trying to put it down. I'm simply trying to say that there exists another level of knowledge and that that level of knowledge, things are seen as single identities. And this being said, it's a very beautiful meditation because here... Patanjali basically speaks about the nature of the self. He speaks about Atman, he speaks about I am, he speaks about the Shiva consciousness, as the Kashmiri Shaivist calls it. And we are going towards the end of this marvelous chapter. We are going now in this numbering at the sutra number 53, 
and the sutra number 53 says transcendental knowledge includes all objects and conditions within its sphere of operation and has no succession that is all actually this sutra which I gave to you one of the most frequently quoted translations for it and I'll repeat it is a very slippery sutra it's one of the sutras which has many meanings those of you who have been confronted with explanations about Sanskrit texts, yoga, yoga techniques and so on you already know because I said it many times Sanskrit is a poetic, ambivalent, multivalent language on purpose so there exist verses in Sanskrit sutras and others which can be read in two or three different ways and all three meanings are true at the same time it's like you are having a sort of twilight language in which abyssal meanings, poetic meanings, metaphoric and parabolic, hyperbolic meanings, they go together and you can read it on several levels. Here it is a little bit of the same. Patanjali uses here a very special word which we cherish a lot in Tantric Yoga which is called Taraka. Taraka is actually the name of a form of yoga outlined by the Upanishads, the Taraka Yoga, and it is related with the name of the great cosmic power Tara, the power of knowledge, and Tara, Taraka, is among others, it means also the star, the guiding star in navigation, in, 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 in sailing, but it also means the force which allows you to cross, and the crossing of a river or the crossing of the ocean is a very, very special symbol in early Buddhism and in Hinduism because crossing to the other shore means going from mortality to immortality. And therefore crossing, what do we try to cross? We try to cross the ocean of life. Life is compared to an ocean, samsara. Samsara, life is an ocean with waves. And we have to cross the ocean of life which, as you can see, has its ups and downs, has its enchantments and disappointments, has its joys and has its pains. The ocean of life is wild, and we navigate without a compass, usually, on the ocean of life, and we are trying to cross this ocean of life to get where? To get to immortality, to get to samadhi, to get to supreme consciousness, to get to liberation, to get to the complete fulfillment, to get to the awakening, to get to immortality. And that is why, actually, Patanjali has, I'm reading again the Sutra, he says the transcendental knowledge includes all objects and conditions within its sphere of operation and has no succession, that is all. This obviously links with what I said before, the first interpretation. I just said, if you make Samyama on the Kshana and on the succession, you reach the true knowledge which is born from the Supreme Realization. And from this knowledge comes the knowledge of two similar objects which are otherwise indistinguishable, uh, which means this is a special knowledge. It's not a quantitative knowledge, it's a divine knowledge. And then he says, this knowledge, this divine knowledge, transcendental knowledge, includes all objects and conditions within its sphere of operation and has no succession. There is no time, therefore it's transcendent, it's the knowledge of the Shiva principle, it's the knowledge of Purusha, it's the knowledge of Atman, it's the, not the knowledge of Prakriti, it's not the knowledge of Agnya Chakra, of the third eye, it's the knowledge of God which seems to be frozen, 
It has no succession. How could it have succession if there is no time? There is no past, no present, no future. Therefore, we are having a, a knowledge which has no time. It's not a knowledge which increases. For example, oh, I didn't know this, but now that you told me, I know it. Which means my knowledge has changed. The knowledge of God doesn't change. The divine knowledge cannot change because it's perfect from the very beginning. And therefore, what we are saying here is, Patanjali in this sutra simply defines and says, this knowledge of which I speak is a knowledge which has no succession and includes all objects and conditions within its sphere of operation. And basically, Patanjali says, this is omniscience. The concept of omniscience, that God is all-knowing, is not here. Omniscience is not at the level of the third eye. Omniscience is at the level of Sahasrara. It's not omniscience in terms of quantitative knowledge. It is omniscience in terms of qualitative knowledge. In our second month of yoga courses, when we have a special lecture about the philosophical, metaphysical basis in yoga, in, in about Purusha and Prakriti, the two aspects, we explain a lot. There is a whole lecture there consecrated just to this aspect that indeed the yogis claim that it is possible for a human being to reach omniscience. But that omniscience does not mean that suddenly you know electronics and uh, Zulu language and how to build aircraft and poetry. And It's not about that. It's not a quantitative step-by-step -step knowledge. It is a knowledge which contains all objects and conditions. It's like I know everything potentially, but there is no sequence to it. There is no past and future. There is no becoming. This is the understanding of omniscience. That is why it is said that God is omniscient. Not because God has a big ajna, because God has a big sahasrara. It's not a knowledge like this knowledge. It's a knowledge which is simply the presence, the simultaneous presence in all the objects, in all the forms of existence. Without a proper arousing of the crown chakra, this cannot be understood. This transcends the mind. And finally, just to mention the last sutra, uh, I'm sorry, I have to keep on uh, into the, this sutra a little bit, because this is what I said, the ambivalence of the meaning. The ambivalence of the meaning is that he says, he uses the word taraka. He says, this knowledge which includes all objects and conditions in its sphere of operation and has no succession, taraka is taraka. It's the one which saves you. It's the one which crosses you through the ocean of existence. Not only that he describes that there exists such a knowledge, such a supreme consciousness, but he calls the attention on the fact that this knowledge, this form of consciousness, is our compass on the ocean of life. This is what makes us cross the ocean of existence. This is Taraka. This is the one which saves us. Therefore, it's a very, very... Here, Patanjali rings the bell. He calls the attention. Now we have reached to the salvation issue. Now we have reached to the guiding light of life in all the circumstances of existence. We are now commenting the last of the sutras from the third chapter. And with this, we are going to conclude the discourse of tonight.
the sutra number 54 which concludes this beautiful samyama and this beautiful analysis of the relationship between the immutable the transcendent and the mutable the changing aspect is giving a very surprising and very beautiful conclusion which is the introduction after all to the last chapter it says kaivalya I'm going to come back to this word. Kaivalya represents the state of Samadhi, for you to understand what I say here. Kaivalya is achieved by equalizing the purity of the illumination of Purusha and Sattva or Prakriti. Kaivalya, first of all, Patanjali uses a word which in Tantra we do not accept. Patanjali uses for the spiritual realization and for the state of spiritual existence the word kaivalya which means isolation or insulation which means to be cut off. The idea has been expressed by countless philosophers. It is expressed in Vedanta as the pristine insularity of the supreme self of Atman it is presented in Buddhism as nirvana, extinction and escaping from the miseries of samsara, the world, the manifestation. It is expressed even in the Western philosophy by one like Leibniz in his concept of monads, that the spirit is a monad which lives in a universe of its own like a soap bubble and therefore the whole universe is only like a projection on an inner screen. Imagine you are in a soap bubble and you see a movie on the inner face of the soap bubble like a 360 degree stereoscopic screen. From this standpoint, I am the monad and you are a movie on my 360 degree soap bubble. Everything I see and interact in a certain way does not exist. The only thing which exists is the so-called monad, the western word monad being nothing else but ultimately an equivalent of Atma or Atman. This view of the universe is a view which does not belong to Tantric Yoga. It belongs to the ascetic forms of Yoga, which always separate Purusha from Prakriti, which separate Nirvana from Samsara, which separate Brahman from Maya, and, sadly enough, separate Shiva from Shakti. They declare one of them as real and eternal because it's perfect and immutable. Purusha, Shiva, Nirvana, Brahman is that. And the other one, they declare it delusive, inexistent, lying, imperfect. And that would be Prakriti, that would be Samsara, that would be Maya. And last but not least, that would be the Shakti aspect. And that is why Tantra cannot accept this, because the ideas in classical Buddhism, in Vedanta and in the Patanjali Yoga are that you are struggling very much for lifetimes and lifetimes to escape from the universe. The universe is the boogeyman. Prakriti is samsara and it's bad, it's a trap, it's a fata morgana, it's something. And your spiritual worthiness will be demonstrated by you escaping from this prison, dashing out of this prison. And where will you go? You will go in a state of 
isolation, splendid isolation. The universe is left behind me like a sort of lie, like an empty soap bubble, like a Fata Morgana. And I live in a no space, no time, in eternity, in the eternal time, in the omnipresent space, in a place in an absolute universe, and I exist in eternal bliss, in pure consciousness, but that I don't need any universe, because I am sufficient unto myself. In spite of the appearances, this is no egoism. Egoism means a sort of egocentric mentality in which one satisfies one's emotions, mind, desires. This is way, way beyond egoism because there are no desires, there is no mind, there are no levels of prakriti, there is no anamaya kosha, there is no pranamaya kosha, there is no manomaya kosha, there is no... Uh, uh, Vigana Maya Kosha, there is not even Ananda Maya Kosha, there is no Kosha, I am out of everything and therefore I exist in the absolute space as the ultimate consciousness but not interacting with the manifestation. I simply escaped from the manifestation. This ideal is completely alien to the Tantric mentality because the Tantric mentality says it's absurd, it's like the whole life is an escape, is a prison escape. It's like you are struggling to go somewhere. It's like this is not good enough. It's like a fear. It's like it's not true. It's, it shouldn't be that because this, this is Shakti. Why would you run from Shakti? Because Shakti is your cosmic mother. Why would you say that your cosmic father is good and your cosmic mother is dangerous or bad? Why? Because they are equal. They are the two faces of the same coin. You cannot imagine Purusha without Prakriti and vice versa. And that is why Tantra says this division in which you demonize one and transform it in the boogeyman just to favor the other, it may be a pedagogical instrument, you know, like I want to get you out quickly of this hall, I'm not telling you, please go out, there is something very good out there. I'm saying, fire, fire, it burns up. And people are out, even without realizing, hey, where was the fire? Oh, you lied to us. Yes, I lied to you, but I got you out in 15 seconds, didn't I? You know, It's like, it works. So in this way, I can present an image, like, this is a boogeyman, get out of here, samsara is terrible, dangerous, and you'll go. And then you'll say, wow, thank you for showing us Purusha, you know, thank you for showing us it's true, you told us a bit of a lie, isn't it? But it was a useful lie. It was a white lie because it actually got us to move. It got us to do something. In the same way, Tantra says that ultimately, if you look at the complete picture, there is nowhere to go. There is no place to run. And that's why Tantra will never accept that the spiritual re realization can be called Kaivalya. That you go in a place where you are insulated, separated, Pristine. It's like somebody who lives on the top of a mountain and nobody sees them and they don't see anybody. A splendid isolation somewhere. Isolation from what? Why would you isolate yourself? Is this universe that terrible to isolate yourself from it? Why not control it? Why not understand it? Why not worship it? Why not make friends with it? And why not understand the laws by which it works 
and thus improve it. Why not? So in this way, Patanjali here completely diverges from the tantric mentality. He is very much like the original Buddhism. I'm always using the syntax original Buddhism or classical Buddhism because there is Buddhism which is tantric, such as the Vajrayana tantric Buddhism, which is not, which is more like what I say, which is more like the tantric tradition of India, of Kashmir and others, uh, and which is not, not stating the same thing. The tantric Buddhism says very clearly, samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara, which is a heresy in Buddhism, that's why Buddhism is split in various sects and schools which don't always agree to, with each other. Because while some people say samsara is terrible and nirvana is wonderful, other people like Tibetan tantrics, they say, no, no, samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. And this like destroys 2,500 years of scaring people with samsara. Samsara is terrible, run away from samsara. And therefore, um, here... Uh, the Tantric tradition cannot agree with the opinion of Patanjali. It's true that Patanjali has his own pedagogy and his system is convergent with itself, it is uh, consistent with itself, but at the same time the Tantric tradition says if you zoom back and see a bigger picture, this is a partial accomplishment. It may be useful practically, pragmatically, to tell you, you know what, you have, you are caught by samsara, you are caught by maya, you are 99.9% attached. So why don't you take a sabbatical from this and for 10 years of your life be detached? You have been attached for a million years. Give at least 10 years to detachment. Try to detach from all this samsara and maya and make a heroic effort to know the other side of reality, the purusha, because you are like a bird with one wing for a million years, for the last 5,000 lifetimes, you are just going samsara, 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 samsara. Only this wing is flapping. Where is purusha? Where is the other part? Where is the pure spirit? Where is the transcendent? So pedagogically, as a method of education, it maybe serves a purpose, like forget about Maya, forget about Samsara, it's bad, forget about Prakriti, cultivate Purusha. Because as a matter of fact, you already are 99.9% .9 Samsara, and you need to compensate a lot for this. It's like you are very, very yin, and you have to eat a lot of yang. Not because yang is better than yin, but because you are too yin, simply. And for you, subjectively, yang is good, yang is necessary. So, pedagogically, the method works. The proof is that classical yoga did work. But Tantra says it's a white lie. It's a white lie because it shows only the very first step. It's a very... it doesn't go further than the tip of your nose. It simply says... Purusha, Purusha, Purusha. Okay, and after I get this 50-50 Purusha and Prakriti, then what? Oh, then actually Prakriti is good again, because Prakriti is Shakti, the consort of Shiva. Okay, so why didn't you tell this to me from the beginning? Why did you create in me, first of all, this senseless fear, this irrational fear that you have to run from the world, you have to run from the universe? I could have acquired all that Purusha, all that Shiva, without having to have been afraid of the rest. By, simply by knowledge, by pure knowledge. 
And that is why this point of view with Kaivalya, run, isolate, escape from Mother Nature, is unnatural from the standpoint of Tantra, because it does not illustrate the full spiritual truth. It's a white lie which is very efficient in the short run. In the short run it makes people practice like crazy. And it's good. But then anyhow somebody has to come and adjust the story and say, okay, you practice like crazy, now you can see Purusha, now of course it's time to zoom back the camera and to see that Purusha is Prakriti and Prakriti is Purusha, that Samsara is Nirvana and Nirvana is Samsara, and therefore Samsara was not that bad as we told you in the beginning, it was just to motivate you that we told you that. So this is the essential difference, that's why it's a difference which appears very much when we talk about the spiritual things, and I teaching here from the standpoint of a tantric school, I have to always emphasize on this, because Patanjali is having a very dry point of view. Patanjali doesn't want any Prakriti. Patanjali doesn't want any Shakti, any manifestation. He just goes fully for the spiritual part, for the void exclusively. And coming back to the Sutra to conclude with this Sutra, he says Kaivalya, this state of isolation, is achieved by equalizing the purity of the illumination of Purusha and Sattva or Prakriti. He uses in Sanskrit the word Sattva. So he says, by equalizing Sattva with Purusha, one reaches this Kaivalya, the enlightenment. This is a very, very discreet, very enlightening point, and this would be our last comment for tonight. Basically, what Patanjali says is this, when you go at the highest level of manifestation of Prakriti, of Shakti, of the cosmic egg, you remember, we always draw this egg on the board in our yoga courses, and this egg is sliced in seven levels, and this is the universe with its seven planes, or the body with its seven chakras, with its seven levels of energy. So when you go to the highest level, which means into the highest chakras, you are having what the Sankhya philosophy and yoga uses the same word, is calling sattva. It is the third guna. Yesterday in my karma yoga lecture, I spoke about the three gunas. And it is a concept which any one of you who studied Hinduism or something like that, classical yoga, knows. And in our yoga courses is a concept which is explained in the second month of the yoga course because it's not very urgent for the beginners in the first month to know that one. It's a concept which can wait. And that's why we chose, since we have much more urgent things to teach in the first month of yoga, we chose to postpone it till the second month where, until which time it can wait very well. And those of you who have been going through our second month of the yoga courses, remember that sattva means the highest principle, the highest of the three triadic energies of the universe, and it represents the energy of purity, the energy of balance, the energy of harmony, the energy of measure, the energy of spirituality. You are a sattvic person if you go dressed in white, if you are a bit of an angel among human beings, if you don't eat putrid, stinky food, if you abstain from violent emotions and from aggression and desire and ambition without end, if you avoid the pitfalls of inertia, obscurity and darkness, laziness, or the excess of hyperactivity, 
too much desire, too much ambition, restlessness. And in the middle of those, there exists this perfect wisdom, this perfect harmony, which is illustrated by sattva. And there exists sattva in behavior, sattvic human beings, like the Brahmins of India were supposed to be very sattvic persons. They were obliged by the caste rules of India to live 100% sattvically. If you would be a Brahmin and go for things which are rajasic or tamasic, you'd, you'd fall out of your caste, you'd lose your caste privileges. You are supposed to be sattvic. Until today, many spiritualists and even many of the regular citizens of India, especially the old-fashioned ones, simple people living in the countryside and living with the faith of their ancestors, they cultivate a faith, they cultivate a lifestyle which is sattvic. You eat food which is sattvic, which means neither hot, pungent, sour, burning, uh, whatever, spicy, nor rotten, stale, fat, uh, degraded, and so on, like uh, milk, rice, butter, if it's clarified butter, not any kind of butter, and all sorts of things which are sattvic. This is a very, very vast concept, and I'm mentioning it because sattva in the daily life is a bit of a word which would mean saintliness. If you say this human being is very sattvic, you are saying this human being is neither tamasic nor rajasic, which means this human being is rather a saintly nature. We can say that most of the people that consider saintly were very sattvic. And sattva is considered to be a sort of forerunner to enlightenment. Before you get enlightened, you are sattvic. It's true that if you are sattvic, it doesn't mean that you are enlightened. And it doesn't guarantee that you are going to become enlightened. I already made a vast comment about this in the previous season when Patanjali has a Samyama which makes exactly the distinction between Purusha and Sattva. But because many of you have not been there, I just wanted to recall this. Many people in spirituality mistake Sattva for Purusha. If, for example, somebody is a very Sattvic person, dresses in white, eats very modest, moderate food, no spices, no rotten, no real balance, like angelic type of life, then you would say this person is enlightened, this person is a saint. That's not true. A person who is sattvic can reach all the way up till here. But here is a different story. So therefore, sattva does not mean purusha. Spirit is a transcendent thing which is neither rajasic, nor tamasic, nor sattvic. It is simply beyond the three gunas. It's beyond the sphere of activity of forces of nature. It is transcendent. It is immaterial. If, if you want, it is supernatural. It is the divine consciousness. It is not of this world. It's supernatural. And that is why Please remember that a person, theoretically, can be sattvic, but not enlightened, not having purusha. And if you stretch it a little bit, a person can be enlightened, but not sattvic. Because one is what I have until here, and another thing is the tangent reality. These are two things 
which are tangent to each other. The cosmic egg has the spirit on top of it. They are like the two sides of a coin. They don't touch each other. They touch onto the back of each other, but the sides of the coin are independent. It's heads or tails. It's, they look different. They are different. They appear different. And that is why what, I, what I'm trying you to make understand, and this I made a long commentary, so when you'll get the full commentary, which I made to the Yoga Sutra, you'll be able to turn to that Sutra and to see that commentary. Sattva is not Purusha, and Purusha is not Sattva. Although most religions tend to mix them up. They say first become very sattvic, which means very angel-like, very saintly, and from there you will cross into Purusha. And the truth is that there have been monks and people who lived a saintly life who never made it to Purusha. They remained saintly, but they never reached enlightenment. We have examples of people who are saintly and charitable, but they did not reach the transcendent consciousness. If you want to stretch it, we have examples of people who on the contrary were famed that they did reach some saintly consciousness, some transcendent consciousness, to use a specific word, Purusha, but they are not necessarily very sattvic. For example, the legendary, controversial, it's true, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff was a meat eater, was a cigar smoker, was a vodka drinker, and he was doing all sorts of other things which had nothing to do with sattva. Gurdjieff was definitely not having a very saintly lifestyle, and yet he was considered by many people to be enlightened. So he was not sattvic, but he, he had already got the cherry on top of the cake, which was the enlightenment itself. His cake was not complete. He had not reached the third level layer of the cake, but he already had the cherry, which is placed on top of the cake, and which is the enlightenment itself. What does it say? Patanjali here is very old-fashioned when he says this. Patanjali says, Kaivalya is achieved by equalizing the purity of the illumination of Purusha and Sattva. So basically... Patanjali says there should be a continual transition. That's the old-fashioned way. You start doing yoga. You practice yama and niyama. You eat sattvic food. You have a sattvic lifestyle. You eliminate from your life all the miseries of tamas and rajas. Twenty years you become more and more saintly, which in a world like ours today would look like pretty unnatural, pretty bizarre, pretty separate from the world, uh, a, a very freak person compared to the imbalanced world in which we live. And from there, being a saintly person, then sooner or later, one day, you are going to get the cherry on top of the cake, which means from that, almost imperceptibly, you are going to migrate into enlightenment. And then you will be a saintly person, enlightened. And your lifestyle and your desires and everything will already fit with that enlightenment. It's like a continuity. So Patanjali basically militates or disagrees with this fact that you can get enlightenment before your time. Like you can get enlightenment although you didn't practice yama and niyama for long time enough. Because, please remember, 
Yama and Niyama, although fundamental in yoga and so very necessary, the very first levels of yoga, they do not condition the attainment of the state of Samadhi. Technically speaking, if you concentrate and meditate and enter in Samadhi, the fact that you yesterday killed a cat, or I don't know, you did, you killed a human being, let's push it, it can't stop it. Try to think, Milarepa killed 35 people and still reached Samadhi. So therefore, it's not about that. There is not, these two things do not interfere with each other. They are different. You can be moderately or even severely immoral, and you can reach enlightenment. Those two are different things. Morality is not a lock. Morality or immorality or sattvic lifestyle or not is not a lock which forbids enlightenment. You can be enlightened while you sneeze. You can be enlightened by a quick method, by a sudden method. A Zen master beats you up or throws you off the window or something and then you are enlightened. This is the paradox of the so-called quick methods of enlightenment. In the Kali Yuga, because of the life is short and people are confused and you have to hammer the iron while it's hot, some spiritual teachers and some spiritual orientations have been inclined to cultivate the so-called quick methods. Like, you know what, I don't know how many of you will spend 12 years with me studying Yama, Niyama, holding diet, becoming sattvic, more and more saintly, and then one day you are going to place the crown on your head and be enlightened. You don't have the patience for that. And therefore, even a teacher may wonder, is there something which I can do in six months with these people, you know? Maybe I'm not going to see them beyond these six months. Let's hammer the iron while it's hot. Now they are here. Can I give something? And sure, there is always the temptation of offering some of the sudden methods. Because there exist methods which are sudden, because the body and the mind is just a machinery. And like every machinery, it has its own tricks. In a clockwork, if you put a pencil in some place, you stop the whole clockwork, because you just put a pencil in the cogged wheels of the machinery. And you freeze it, you block it. So therefore, it's possible to freeze the machinery and to do things with your mind and body, just as the people from NLP have discovered in neuro-linguistic programming. They screw your mind in such ways that you can walk on fire, you can do all sorts of things, and you don't even need to practice yoga for 20 years or something. You can even achieve things which are basically CDs, paranormal abilities, by just doing some pretty banal routines, after all. Every one of you can go to a fire walking seminar and in two, in two days you will walk on fire. You will have photos to demonstrate that you walked on red hot coal. How comes? Are you a great yogi? What city is that? No, it's called NLP and therefore it's this, even science today, some borderline psychology with hypnosis and others, they have discovered methods of putting a pencil in the machinery and kind of screwing the machinery in one way or another. So such methods exist in spirituality. They exist in Zen. Gurdjieff came with a lot of such methods. They exist in Kashmiri Shaivas. They exist in Tibetan Tantric Yoga. And there is a problem with them. The problem with them is that you are going to screw the machinery, stop the mind, see Purusha, reach a certain level of enlightenment, but this part, 
is going to be unsolved yet. Your prakriti part is not saintly. You can still be profoundly tamasic, profoundly rajasic, not very sattvic, and you have reached a degree of enlightenment. And then you become what is called a spiritual split personality. You are half angel and half demon. Inside you, there still exists Mr. Jekyll as well as Dr. Hyde. You are two. There still exists the old you, which tortures cats and slaughters pigs to eat them and whatever else you do. And there exists an enlightened person who has seen the unity of all things and who has understood suddenly that the nature of reality is an incomprehensible oneness and unity. And you are like a schizophrenic. One moment you are Ramakrishna, the next moment you are Dr. Jekyll or whatever. The bad guy was in that combination. I never remember which one was which. So, I'm telling you all this because such things happen. Gurdjieff was such a split personality. Osho Rajneesh was partly such a split personality. Chogyam Trungpa was partly such a split personality. The world, especially the 20th century, abounds in spiritual teachers that were at the same time weirdos, and it is very, very difficult to say which part of them was predominant, and if these people were crooks, which were a bit enlightened, or enlightened beings with crooked inclinations. It's very difficult to say where the seesaw stands with these people. And that is why the old school, the old-fashioned yogis, preferred to conduct an enlightenment which is smooth, in which you work. First, we don't work on the enlightenment. First, we work on making you saintly, sattvic. And when you have reached saintly and sattvic, then we make the final assault for the great thing. <coughs> so in this way, at least we know that if you don't reach enlightenment, at least we drop you in a position where you are saintly, which is kind of 80% good already, and at least you are going to create good karma and be harmonious. And therefore, this is a traditional down-to-earth way, which of course uh, is abhorred by the restless uh, wild people who, you know, go reckless, and even in spirituality, they would like to perform a sort of reckless spirituality, without consideration of any precaution and so on, give it to me now. Ramana Maharishi reached enlightenment in 30 minutes by, this by, a, by a similar freak event. But Ramana Maharishi noticing that he was just an uneducated spiritual boy, he was just basically a 17-year Indian boy with no yoga practice. Then Ramana Maharishi immediately realized that he will be split that he is Jekyll and Hyde. And therefore Ramana Maharishi, when he reached his state of Samadhi, he was conscious enough that he ran away from home, he went to today's city of Tiruvannamalai in Tamil Nadu, and he lived in the temples there for 10, 12, 15 years. He stayed in the basement of the temples, and every day he meditated, like 10, 20 hours per day. He just meditated, meditated. He went in Samadhi again and again. And he re-experienced this. So basically, what did Ramana Maharishi do? Ramana Maharishi was becoming sattvic after he became enlightened. Usually you become enlightened after you become sattvic. Now, if 
If Gurdjieff became enlightened, which is always a controversial issue, some people say yes, some people say no, and there is no way of demonstrating finally where this one stood. But I am saying, if Gurdjieff became enlightened, then after he became enlightened, he didn't bother to become sattvic. He should have been sattvic until he reached enlightenment. But as we say in an English saying, he put the cart in front of the horses. He put the cart in front of the oxen. He first got enlightened, but he had not sorted out first his problem of becoming sattvic, at least. And he found himself as an enlightened person who is not sattvic, and therefore who is a bit reckless, bizarre, uh, you know, flashy, strange, charging, doing all sorts of things which are not really kosher, which are not really saintly or sattvic. And that is why Patanjali obviously belongs to the old school. Patanjali says, no enlightenment without sattva. Make that your sattva naturally continues with the cherry on top of the cake. That there is a continuity. First build up a foundation of sattva and then become enlightened on top of that. If you become enlightened without that, he says you cannot reach properly this Kaivalya. Kaivalya is achieved by equalizing the purity of the illumination of Purusha and Sattva. Build, it's exactly like you put a stone in a ring. Make a good monture for the stone, otherwise the stone may fall off the ring. Make sure that the stone is well encased in the ring. The encasing is Sattva, is a saintly life, a balanced life, a harmonious life, and the stone, the diamond, is the enlightenment. And unfortunately, we can see that very often in Kali Yuga, because of the emergency of the age in which we live, this is not always the case. Sometimes people cultivate sattva, but they don't bother to reach enlightenment, which is a true sadness, like it means a complete fiasco spiritually. You, you become saintly. The point of the spiritual life is not to become saintly. The point of spiritual life is to reach enlightenment. So, without that one is like the work without the crown. You forgot to get exactly the crown that crowns the work of a lifetime. And on the other hand, we sometimes see enlightenment before the sattvic accomplishment, which Patanjali doesn't think is good. The truth is, that while history, especially in the last centuries, has demonstrated some examples of people who are enlightened, albeit not completely sattvic, history also demonstrates that these kind of people are a bit split and they have a life which could be called a little bit tortured, like not really enlightened, in a certain way very, very enlightened, but in another way like being at the same time split freak played by plagued by some strange desires and other such things and therefore having this dual nature Jekyll and Hyde and you always can wonder which is going to win and that is why once more here Patanjali he prepares us for the fourth chapter which will start in our next discourse and the next week and the next chapter the last chapter is called Kaivalya Pada the chapter on Kaivalya, which means enlightenment. He calls it Kaivalya, like isolation, pristine insulation, 
a word with which we don't agree, but the meaning of which is perfectly spiritual and clear. And he, to prepare that, he says in the last sutra of the third chapter, Kaivalya is achieved by equalizing the purity of illumination of Prakasha, so the stone with the sattva, with the Prakriti aspect. So this again shows that Patanjali prefers the gradual path. The Tibetans call it the gradual path, Lamrim, as opposed to the sudden path. Uh, and these are two different styles of practice. In tantric schools today, we practice both the gradual and the sudden path. But by preference, if people generally have time in life, it's always preferable to use the gradual path and to build the spiritual realization. Technically, it is possible for me to teach methods in which you could reach the state of samadhi suddenly, even in a matter of a month's time, even in a matter of a few months. So it is possible to obtain states of enlightenment even in less than six months by using some of these radical methods. However, I never would teach these methods unless I would see that your death is imminent and you don't have any chance to continue the spiritual work. And then since you stand to lose everything, here is a sudden method so you can try to attack of the final destination suddenly because for you there is nothing more to lose. But otherwise, except this extreme condition in which we fear that the person will not have time enough to reach the final destination, if there are decent reasons to believe that you have some time in your life, always we would prefer to use the gradual method, which takes, instead of three months, it can take three years or six years or ten years or twelve years, and then we know that in this way, first you are going to develop spiritual qualities, you are going to deepen yama and niyama, you are going to build a solid sattvic foundation, encasing, encasement for the stone, and then finally you are going to put the cherry on top of the cake, when you will work in the final stage of our program on Sahasrara, with methods which are specific, and then you have the possibility to achieve the life. It's not that states of samadhi cannot occur while you do our intermediary program here in Agama. It actually can, and some people did have glimpses of the states of Samadhi. But it is like building a building. First you build the foundation, then you erect a good structure, and then when you have made all the solid structure, then you can put a proper roof, and you can build all the other things, because now you know that the structure will hold. If we put the roof before all the rest is prepared, it might crumble, and that is exactly the situation which I have decided, which I have described before. This being said, next week we are going to go together with Patanjali in his splendid analysis of the state of spiritual realization and the issues related to that. We stop for tonight.